Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage, here in Berlin and beyond. And then we bring you the very best of those stories here on the podcast. At the moment, we're sort of back on schedule doing shows in front of wonderful live audiences, mainly at our regular venue, Akud, a very Berlin place. It's a sort of slightly crumbling and graffitied arts and culture complex where you can find everything from electronic music and experimental film to a ceviche food truck. But sometimes we get invited elsewhere. Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire and I were fortunate enough to grace the stage last month at the Collegium Ungaricum, the gleamingly elegant white and boxy Hungarian culture center in the middle of our fair city. If you're a regular listener to our show, you might know that we've previously featured a couple of Dead Lady translators, Willa Muir and Dorothy L. Sayers. And so we were delighted to present a Dead Lady show on the occasion of the Translationale, the Literary Translation Festival, in October. As you may recall, Katie is herself an award-winning translator and the publisher of V&Q Books, which presents contemporary German writing in English. Here she is with the story of translator Melina Jesenska from the stage of Berlin's Collegium Ungaricum. I'm talking today about uh, Milena Jesenska. She's often known only as Milena and sometimes as Kafka's great love. In fact, even her own daughter wrote a book about her entitled just Kafka's Milena without the surname in the title. Uh, but actually she was in her own right a very fascinating person, a writer and a translator. So she was born in 1896 in Prague. Her father was a practicing dentist and a professor of dental medicine and quite involved in the Czech nationalist movement. She grew up in these two streets you can see here on these lovely uh, vintage postcards. On the left, your left, yes, on the left is uh, Ferdinand Avenue, in that colored picture, and uh, on the right is Ovatsna Street, uh, and they were at the, the heart of the, the Czech community. As you can see, Prague at the time was a, a kind of a bustling metropolis, trams and uh, people walking around, promenading the streets was a, a favorite hobby. And I mentioned the Czech community. What's important to know is that at the time, there were kind of two separate worlds in, in Prague, uh, Czech and German. And there were Jewish residents who were more aligned to the German community. So it was, it was part of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire when she was born. Milena attended uh, Central Europe's first girls' grammar school, the Minerva, which uh, produced several generations of prominent Czech women. When it first started, it was open to train girls to go to university, but girls weren't actually allowed to attend university when it first opened. But by the time Milena started, uh, they were. Um, here she is, aged 13, looking very glamorous and melancholy by the side of the river uh, on the cover of Alena Wagnerova's biography, which was one of the sources I used. And three years later, in 1912, her mother, also called Milena, 
died after a long illness. At which point the 16-year-old other Milena went pretty much off the rails. She became a total manic pixie dream girl. She hung out in cemeteries like Mary Shelley. She took drugs like Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach. She modelled for painters like Dora Maar. And she went shoplifting like Winona Ryder. My favourite anecdote is, is the time she stole her father's socks and gave them to a friend of hers who was, um, was one of her father's students, so he obviously noticed when this guy is sitting there in a lecture wearing his socks. Anyway, um, what's even worse is that she started hanging out with the writers. Um, here in the Café Arco was a big meeting place for, for um, writers in Prague. She was actually enrolled at the university to study medicine, uh, but she didn't really go. Uh, she wasn't really into it. She couldn't, couldn't cope with blood. Uh, in fact, she spent a lot of her time kind of promenading with her girlfriends, showing off their nice clothes, uh, and, and crossing the divide between Czech and German literary Prague. She became the talk of society. It was a small world in Prague. Um, and uh, you can see her here wearing an unusual tennis outfit, I would say. Uh, a, a lovely uh, huge bow tie with, with a polka dot shirt, black polka dot shirt and a long skirt. I'm not sure how she played tennis in it. She's probably 16 at the time. A little bit after this, she uh, fell in love with one of those literary dudes. <clears throat> Ernst Pollack, who was uh, a German uh, speaker, he was Jewish, he was 10 years older than her and he worked in a bank. Her dad, the, the uh, Czech nationalist, <laughs> did not approve, uh, he was also an anti-Semite, especially when she got pregnant in 1916 um, and had an abortion. Her father found out and, and quite kindly looked after her afterwards, but he was very, very angry uh, and when she refused to break off the relationship, he um, sent her to a private psychiatric clinic on grounds of moral insanity. Milena wrote later to Max Brod, psychiatry is a terrible thing when it is abused. Anything can be abnormal, and every word is for the tormentor a new weapon. She made friends with a nurse, though, so she got the keys... Uh, and was still meeting up with Ernst in secret. So they, they planned to, to marry and move to Vienna, and at some point her father gave in uh, and gave his consent because she wasn't yet 21. Uh, so she was released from hospital after nearly nine months. Off they went to the um, imperial capital of Vienna in March 1918. You can guess by the date, it wasn't a good time to move to Vienna. Uh, the First World War was... Coming to an end, there was hunger and violence. Uh, Milena wasn't a confident German speaker at the time, but she still hung out with writers again. Uh, for instance, here, the photo you can see here is the uh, interior of the Café Herrenhof in Vienna, one of their hangouts. Um, it's not to my taste. It's a little bit chintzy. But if, I don't know, maybe you could sit there and have a good literary conversation. Ernst, her husband, her first husband, was, was a bit of a cokehead, unfortunately, and uh, he had terrible writer's block, so he was, he was a, a 
a critic, but he never managed to write anything. Um, he believed in open relationships, and he, uh, he moved one of his girlfriends in with him and his wife for a little while. Uh, when Milena had an affair with his friend Hermann uh, Bloch, he didn't like that. I don't know, strange, as if he had double morals. Um, uh, and he asked them to break it off. So Milena was not happy in Vienna, and she needed ways to, to supplement Ernst's quite meagre income uh, at the bank. Apparently, she did some translating for Freud, and then she began writing for Czech newspapers. There were mainly observational pieces about life in Vienna and fashion columns, because she was really into clothes. And the next idea she had was translation, which is where this guy comes along, Kafka, with his beautiful ears. Um, so she, she vaguely knew him in Prague, and on a visit back there in autumn 1919, she chatted to him in a cafe. Um, and then when she got back, she wrote and asked him for permission to translate some of his stories. Uh, this is the first one, The Stoker. It's called in English and German Der Heizer, and it was published in the Czech magazine Kmen in April 1920 as Topic. Um, it's, the story is a precursor to the novel America. Kafka was very impressed. He wrote, I'm deeply moved by the faithfulness with which you've done it, sentence for sentence, a faithfulness I wouldn't have thought possible in the Czech language, as little as I would have suspected your beautiful natural qualification for it. It's nice, isn't it, as translators, to hear that praise from the writer. Um, so this correspondence grew into a, a passionate love affair by letter. Unfortunately, though, uh, Kafka was on the fence, really. Uh, he, he changed his mind from, please send me the translation, I can't hold enough of you in my hands, to, I hardly dare read the letters, I can read them only in snatches, I can't stand the pain the reading of them causes me, to, please don't write anymore. They did actually meet twice after that, but it ended badly. Milena still loved Ernst for some reason, and Franz was afraid of intimacy in a way that Milena just was not. Um, Milena kept the letters, though, and in 1939 she gave them to the German writer Willi Haas. Um, he published them in German in 1952 and in English in 1953. So you can hear, see here the English first edition, beautiful red cover. Uh, and as you can see, it's just called Letters to Milena. Um, Willi Haas, this is a translation by Tanya and James Stern, by the way. Willi Haas wrote a preface and an editor's note to that uh, collection. Neither of them, and nowhere in the book, does he mention Milena's surname. And I think... That is the, the, one of the main reasons why she's become so invisible as her own person. Also because her own side of the correspondence was lost. Um, Kafka and Yasenska remained in touch, though. Um, she wrote in a letter to somebody else that she'd seen him on his deathbed in a sanatorium outside Vienna in 1924. You might think, if you uh, only know uh, letters to Milena that she only translated Kafka, but no. She also translated uh, Rosa Luxemburg's letters to Sonja Liebknecht. And uh, there's the 
scruffy looking first edition there, I believe, on the screen. Um, and uh, the, the book on the right, which doesn't look very much fun, very fun, is by her friend Otto Rühle. It's basically a guide to raising children the radical socialist way. Rundfragen der Erziehung. She also translated from English with a little help. Her English wasn't strong. Um, here's two things she translated from English. Robert Louis Stevenson's The Master of Ballantrae in a rather grubby first edition here with two nice... I mean, she was into clothes, so maybe she liked that cover. Um, uh, and, and one you've definitely heard of is, is J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Um, I'm showing you the absolutely gorgeous uh, Czech cover here. Modernist beauty with these wonderful animal shapes and hot air... Um, balloons a beautiful book what she would do is she would pitch translations to magazine editors and publishing houses uh, and they would often be serialized so she translated a whole novel would be serialized in magazines or published as a book of its own um, and she chose these texts according to her interests um, I think today we'd call it a, a portfolio career alongside journalism Eventually, um, going back to her life story, eventually Milena left Ernst Pollack in Vienna and returned to Prague. She left uh, with this uh, Austrian guy who was a communist count, Xavi Schafgotsch. Um, there's a lot of difficult names in this talk. Um, uh, her divorce came through in May 1925, Schafgotches came through the next year, but uh, didn't last, unfortunately. Obviously, he was also married yeah, to somebody else. I'm showing you here the, the most common photo and, and really a gorgeous photo that was taken in 1925 after she went back to Prague at the Fotostudio Praha on Wenceslas Square. It was probably a kind of autograph card um, for the newspaper Narodni Listi. Uh, where she was work worked, you can see her very characteristic uh, signature, which I really like, very sharp. Her return home was, was triumphant. She really enjoyed life in the new uh, independent Czechoslovakia much more than Vienna. Um, she, she reveled in her new celebrity, which she had in this small world as a journalist. She worked for all sorts of newspapers um, across the political spectrum from, from quite conservative to communist, uh, even uh, an illegal newspaper at one point. And it's quite hard to tell from her many articles where exactly her political allegiances lay. Um, often she seems to be writing for her perceived audience rather than saying what she really thinks. Uh, but her political uh, leanings did change over time as well. Once she got to Prague, she got a new job uh, editing the sophisticated illustrated magazine, Pestri Tiden. Uh, and I'm showing you here some lovely drawings by her friend, the artist V.H. Brunner. Milena is the one on the left on the, on the phone, shouting on the phone with her hair standing on end. And uh, on the right, you can see her inspecting some material for, for the magazine. They were great friends, these two. So she was hanging out with all the cool kids in, in Vienna, uh, and along the way she met uh, the emerging architect Jaromir Kretzer, who came to be associated with Bauhaus. Um, 
And this is another cartoon. She was that famous that, you know, people did cartoons of her in the papers. Um, showing Milena, Jaromir and their daughter, Jana, who was called Honza, in a sparsely furnished modernist flat. They don't look terribly happy. Uh, Jaromir and Milena uh, made friends with them, were very close to a lot of Czech communists. I just want to show you Honza as an adult because I love this photo so much. Um, in this beautiful patterned dress with this dude. Look at that guy. He looks like a young John Lennon. Um, um, this is 1949 uh, with the philosopher and poet Egon Bondi. Back to Milena, though. This is her in the 30s. You can see she's changed a lot. Her face is really filled out. That long hair has gone. What happened? She had a, a difficult time at the end of the 20s. She was very happy to be to uh, fall pregnant in 1928. But while she was pregnant, she broke her leg skiing, as you do when you're pregnant. Um, uh, and during that time, um, her increasing communist tendencies got her sacked from the magazine for unconsidered propaganda in favour of the Soviet Union. She was hospitalized for quite a long time before and after the birth, and more medical problems resulted in a permanent limp, constant pain, and unfortunately, a morphine addiction. She grew increasingly radical and earnest. It's not quite clear. I couldn't work out whether she actually joined the Communist Party. Um, certainly, though, Yaromir, her second husband, went to work in the Soviet Union, and while he was there, he not only grew disillusioned with um, Stalinist Soviet Union, but uh, also fell in love with somebody else. Uh, and he returned rather shocked. As repressions intensified, Milena began looking after her fellow communists. She, she would um, take them in. And, and one of them who she took into her home was a guy called Evgen Klinger, who was a Hungarian Jew from Slovakia. He was living under a pseudonym. He was also quite handsome, apparently. She did have, I'm not listing them all, she had a lot of handsome partners. Um, but unfortunately, their relationship lost her more work because he was considered a Trotskyite, so she couldn't work for the hardline communist newspapers anymore either. I did read that they translated some Hungarian together, some Hungarian books, Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I couldn't find the name, so I don't, I'm afraid, I, I'm not going to mangle any Hungarian this evening, sorry. Um, she eventually went into rehab in 1937, and she and Evgen distanced themselves from the Communist Party line, and they got some work with the liberal newspaper, Pritomnost. That is the most difficult word this evening, and I've finished it now, so that's good. Um... It was, it was kind of a second journalistic heyday for her. Of course, 1937, the, the Nazis were already in power in Germany and there were a lot of refugees heading for Prague uh, who she um, had a lot of dealings with. She wrote, The task of the reporter is sometimes similar to that of a hyena. The journalist travels with a notebook and writes other people's troubles to make news. Inevitably, I must seem like someone from another, safer world who comes pen in hand to write of their suffering. But she didn't just write, she also helped people. She was 
always an intensely devoted friend. Uh, I'm showing you here her, uh, Milena and her lifelong friend, Stasha Yilovska. Here they are in 1925 in beautiful 20s clothing in a sort of light dappled forest clearing, looking very happy. Um, as I said, she cared for refugees herself. She took them into her home. She fed them. And once the Nazis arrived in the remaining Czech territories in March 1939, she uh, helped them to escape again. Most of her friends left, certainly the Jewish and the communist ones, um, including Evgen and Jaromir. But Malena felt it was more important to stay behind, which meant sadly, that she was arrested by the Gestapo in November 1939, probably not for the um, helping people escape, uh, probably for her writing. Uh, and she was imprisoned in Prague and then taken to Dresden. During her time in prison, she wrote many, many letters to her father and daughter, who were now reluctantly living together. Um, they were lost in the 50s, but they were found again in, in a Czech secret police archive um, after the Iron Curtain fell. Um, this is one on uh, a letterhead from the prison that she was in in Dresden. It's written in German to her father, I presume, so that the prison authorities could censor what she was writing. Um, she was tried in Dresden. Uh, they had no evidence. They had to acquit her, but they didn't send her home. Instead, they put her into what the Nazis cynically called protective custody in Ravensbrück concentration camp. When she found out that was where she was going, she smuggled out a note from one straw mattress to the next, using the toilet in front of 12 people, no water, bed bugs, loneliness, crazy longing for Honza. Milena Jesenska died in the camp of kidney failure on the 17th of May, 1944. Even there, though, even through pain and illness, she helped others for nearly three years. She developed another deep friendship with uh, Margarita Buba Neumann, who survived the camp and, and wrote a biography of Milena, although, again, her surname wasn't in the title. Uh, the two of them had trouble with um, some hardline communist fellow prisoners, but Milena found gentler work in the camp infirmary. And there she managed to save lives by adjusting um, medical records to prevent women from being used for medical experiments that were going on there. She and Margarita protested to the camp authorities about some of the more egregious cruelties and crimes, and that actually unbelievably led to the arrest of Dr. Rolf Rosenthal, who had been stealing gold from the corpses of Sinti and Roma women he killed using barbiturate injections. Milena Jesenska's friends held a party for her 47th birthday on the 10th of August, 1943. She was given embroidered handkerchiefs, a cloth heart with her name on it, a figurine made of a toothbrush, and flowers. Flowers were one of her, her lifelong passions. There's a beautiful story about... There are actually a lot of beautiful stories about uh, her rebellious youth 
when she would roam around Prague stealing flowers from parks. And apparently she picked enough flowers to fill uh, Ernst Pollack's room in his lodgings with flowers, but he wasn't impressed. This is a photo taken by my friend Karen Margolis, who you might know. She's a former Dead Ladies presenter and another translator. Um, it shows Milena Jasenska's plaque in the Ravensbrück Memorial Centre, uh, which commemorates her as a mediator between Czech, Jewish and German lives and worlds. And I'd like to remember Milena Jasenska in that role too, specifically as a translator. From a young age, she refused to see her beloved Prague as only belonging to one culture and one language. She was always curious about German and Jewish life and letters in the city. I think her, her smuggling of people across borders ties in there too, metaphorically at least. In 1938, she went to the mainly German Sudetenland, soon before it was occupied by the Wehrmacht, and wrote, Ordinary people are very grateful when they hear a Czech speak German. The fact that these Germans love their language, and I don't see why we should not accept this, means that they are German, not that they are inevitably Nazi. And even from her Dresden prison, she wrote to her father, And yet I have met wonderful and lovable Germans in this Germany. She bridged cultural divides, explained Austrian and German culture to the Czechs and to some extent in the other direction. And I would say she deserves to be remembered by her full name for her full life. Milena Jasenska, journalist and translator. Thank you. Katie Darbyshire on Milena Jasenska. Thank you, Katie. We'll have images and more info for you at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast, and on our social media channels at Dead Lady Show. Thank you to everyone at the Translationale, the Toledo Program, and Welt Lesebühne for having us, including Linda Nadiani, Eva Profusova, and Rolly Morin, as well as the evening sign language interpreter Oya Ataman and the tech Betty Kapoon. Special thanks to Zoltan Demeter, who recorded the audio you've been listening to. Translationale and Toledo are supported by the Deutsche Übersetzerfonds as part of the Neustadt Kulturprogramm. If you are in Berlin, come and see us at our next live event. It's very soon on November the 30th. That event will be 2G+, meaning you'll need to show proof of vaccination or recovery, as well as a recent negative COVID test for entry. Our podcast will be back again next month to bring you another fabulous Dead Lady. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florine Dowsens and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Thanks for listening. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Neustadt Kulturprogramm and its Translationale Festival.